Hey, it's Jesse. Quick announcement before we kick off the show. We're approaching the end of the year. People are starting to feel generous, giving to causes they believe in. I want you to take a minute and think about supporting your local public radio station. If you want to support a show like our show, Bullseye, supporting your local public radio station is an amazing way to do it. They are the bedrock of NPR's entire fundraising system, and they are reliant on contributions from listeners like you. If you think the government or grants or whatever are keeping the lights on, you're mistaken. It really comes from you. Your local station probably brings you bullseye. It also brings you all the news that you rely on, all the other programming that you rely on. It is a touchstone in your community. I support my local public radio station. I think you should support yours, too. Here's how you can do it. Go to donate.npr.org slash bullseye. That's donate.npr.org slash bullseye. Then tell your friends why you gave, why public radio matters to you with the hashtag YourPublicRadio. One last time, it's donate.npr.org slash bullseye. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. Jason Mitchell, the actor, is a guy with a lot of great stories, like the time he got cast as Easy e in the NWA biopic Straight Outta Compton was sort of his breakthrough role. He was living in his hometown of New Orleans at the time. He had one audition that had gone well, and then he got a phone call. They call me back when I'm, like, at my job. I'm, like, shucking oysters. They call me, and they're like, uh, we want you to fly to L.A. tomorrow for a car back. I'm like, wait, what? Record scratch. Like, what? No, I'm not flying to L.A. for a car back tomorrow. I'm still on probation, for one. I'm not in the position. The way my bank account set up, you see what I'm saying? Because, see, I got kids. I can't just get on a flight to L.A. tomorrow like that. You see what I'm saying? I've never been to California. I don't know. You're scaring me right now. So they call me back, and they're like, well, they want to Skype it. I'm like, say less. Too easy. You know, so I go back by Megan because we got to hardwire this joint to the to the super wire with the big antenna on top of the building. We don't need no skips. We don't need no <laughs> we don't need no Nathaniel. You know what I mean? We need this to be the best connection we could get, right? So get me to the CNN studio. Exactly. Facts, right? So we we go there and um it was it it happened right there over Skype. Never left, never left New Orleans. My first time going to California was on the first class flight headed to the London Hotel, baby. It's Bullseye. <laughs> This week, Jason Mitchell talks more about Straight Outta Compton, his starring role in the new movie Tyrell, and more. He's also got some top-shelf expertise on how to prepare oysters. That's basically it, man. That's that's the tips, you know? Like, I'm arguably one of the best char grillers in the world. I would put my money down on it, that I would, I would feed you oysters that change your life. Then, Karina Longworth. She's a writer. She's the host of the hit podcast, You Must Remember This just wrote a new book about Howard Hughes' time as a producer and director during Hollywood's golden age. It's as sordid and cutthroat as you might imagine. I think there were signs that he was always extremely manipulative and he was never interested in taking no for an answer and he was never interested in being denied anything. And so when he didn't like a situation, he would do whatever he could to get out of it. And finally, 
I'll tell you about the most wonderful, as in filled with wonder, video game that I've ever played. That's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. First up this week, Jason Mitchell. Jason is an actor, a really great actor. He's been in a bunch of acclaimed movies and TV shows. In Mudbound from a couple years ago, he played a World War II veteran returning home to Mississippi. In Straight Outta Compton, he basically stole every scene he was in as ECE. And on the hit TV show The Shy, he starred as Brandon. Jason started acting a little late in the game. He didn't get his first role till he was 24. It wasn't an easy road for him, either. He was raised in a tough part of New Orleans. His home was devastated by Katrina. He had run-ins with the law when he was younger. You'll hear more about all that stuff in just a minute. The important thing about Jason, though, is this. He's got a presence on screen that demands your attention. He's versatile, magnetic. He's charming. I get that it's sort of a cliche to say... You're going to be hearing even more great things from Jason Mitchell soon, but seriously, I expect that you will be hearing even more great things from Jason Mitchell soon. I think you'll agree with me, too, once you, once you hear this interview. He's got a new movie coming out. It's called Tyrell. It's in theaters now. Mitchell stars as Tyler. He's a young guy who lives with his girlfriend in New York and works at a restaurant. He decides he wants to get out of the city, and he takes a trip with a handful of other guys his age. He rides out to the Catskills for a long kind of guys weekend in a cabin. Only the guys in the cabin are almost all friends of friends. He doesn't really know any of them. And one other thing that's worth mentioning, Tyler's black. Everyone else on the trip is white. If that plot sounds like it just went from goofy fun to nerve wracking, that's because it it did. Director Sebastian Silva made it that way. The movie's funny at times, but it's not exactly a comedy. It's intense and kind of stressful, but it's also not really a horror movie. Nothing really gruesome or violent happens. It's both a weird and weirdly plausible look at race and masculinity and how people react when they have to deal with those topics head on. Let's hear a little bit of the movie. In this scene, Tyler and his friend John are on their way to the weekend, a birthday for a guy named Pete. Their car breaks down. They're pushing it down a back road, high in the Catskills. And as they're about to hear, a woman walking along the road, played by Ann Dowd, notices they're having car trouble. My husband has the car or I'd help you. I'm so sorry. Oh, it's, it's fine. It's okay. Our friends are coming. They live nearby. They're going to oh, they're gonna be here uh, in a where are you? Where are you going? Uh, 300 Peekamoose. Oh, that's just down the road. Yeah. It's the two blue houses side by side. Exactly. Yeah. You're visiting the Argentinian fellow? Nico. Nico, that's yeah. it. Very nice. Sweetheart. Yeah. yeah. Wonderful yeah, I, guy. I hadn't had the chance to meet him oh, yet. Oh, good. So, yeah, we'll see good. how that goes. Yeah, sure, <laughs> sure. So where are you coming from? Oh, just in the city. New York City? <laughs> yes, ma'am. Yeah, good, good. Yeah. Not too far. Yeah. Just up for a, a weekend. Right, right, Good, right. I'm Sylvia. Oh, Tyler. Ah, pleasure. Pleasure to meet you. Yeah, pleasure. Yeah. Well, if your friends bail on you, I live right around the corner, tons of room. All right, thank you. Well, good luck to you. All right, thank you so much. <laughs> yeah. Uh, nice to meet you, All too. Right. Yeah, and your name? Uh, John. John, John. Have a great time, thank guys. Thank you so much. Enjoy. All right, All right oh, we Jason Mitchell, welcome to Bullseye. I'm happy to have you on the show. Oh, man, happy to be here. Thank you, thank you, thank you. You were kind enough to ask me how I was doing in a relatively sincere way um, right before we went on the air, and I confessed to being a little bent out of shape because I just watched this movie an hour and a half ago. Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> it is... It is. Sorry. Yeah, I mean, it is like... 
the intimacy of of a film shot in this manner yeah. you know like these like a, it's a very it's a very small scale film but that intimacy becomes really horror like <laughs> yeah yeah it really is yeah it it definitely goes from 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 dark comedy to horror comedy very quickly you almost feel scared for Tyler you know and it's a it's it's a pretty interesting movie to watch and it for it to be so intimate and not have any explosions and all of that it's very intense very intense it's a beautiful thing to be able to recognize our differences you know what i mean like the relationship michael sarah and i have on camera is the same relationship that he and I have off camera because we are okay with looking at our differences. I could be like, hey, look, you know, you want to come up? I'm going to the club with Future tonight, you know what I mean? You know, <laughs> if you're trying to move, you know what I mean? He's like, you know, Jason, I'm not, I mean, you know, I'm not really into that kind of thing, man. You know, I, you know, and me and him are good friends because we're okay with accepting each other for who we are. You know what I'm saying? I got to tell you, Jason, like, you know that Mike is in a good position in his life and career yeah. where he feels comfortable saying no to an invitation to go to the club with you in future. Like, <laughs> right. You know what I mean? Like, not like. He made it. That's what he knew he made yeah, it. Yeah. Like, he's, he's got, he's so set. That he's got something better to do than that. Even if that better to do means he just wants to read a book or whatever. Like, I'm, I'm, you, you won't find me at the club on a regular day. I believe you me, right? Unless it's a show or something. I'm not at the club. But if you called me tomorrow and said, would you like to go to the club with me in future? I'd be like, I mean, yes, I guess. I, who am I to say no? <laughs> yeah, man. He's that kind of guy. He's that kind of guy. And I love him so much for it. I love him so much for it because during this film, you know, like we were shooting in the Catskills, you know, so it's not like we got hotels and all that luxury around us. We all literally had to like stay in cabins together, you know, so like some of the actors stayed together, some of the producers stayed together, you know, so on and so forth. But um, we just really got to know each other, man. He taught me how to play poker. Just really, really, really cool dude, you know, and I think uh, you should always hang with everybody because you can learn from everybody. The first time he was on this show. Uh, it was by phone from his uh, parents' house. <laughs> That's not surprising. That's so Michael. That's so Michael, man. Let, let's hear another scene from the movie Tyrell. So in, in this scene, your character and his buddy are like, this is just after the scene that, that we just heard. You're like on the road, and finally you're, the car is out of gas. Everybody's all worn out, and you've just been standing there in the cold and pushing the car and whatever, and... Your friends are supposed to be there, but they're super late. And, and finally, we meet the friends. They roll in, yeah. How you doing? Nico. Tyler. Come on, Tyler. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank welcome. you, thank you, thank you. Happy birthday. How you doing, man? I'm good. I'm Roddy. Uh, All right. Tyler. How you doing? Good to meet you. Good to see Max, you. Good to see Tyler. you. Hey, Tyrell. Nice to meet you, man. Oh, it's actually Tyler, but... Oh, sorry. No, no, no. I'm good. I'm good. Max, you idiot. That's like the... Almost as big as the racial aggression gets in the movie we there's not a moment where a guy in a ku klux klan hood right breaks down the screen door get the black dude (laughs) right yeah and and i think that like you know one of the things about the film is that everyone all of the characters are essentially you know 
offering their best goodwill. Right. It's that they're they are in that situation in in very different circumstances. It's just a different thing to be to be the black guy in that situation. <laughs> right, right, right. And uh, I think that's what sort of makes this film also beautiful, the fact that, like, we're over, like, who's playing the victim and who's to blame and all these sort of things. Everybody just has different upbringings and different opinions on how to view a situation. This one just sort of lets you know how it feels to be black. And... Uh, I don't think there's a, a right or wrong way sort of to approach that that dialogue, you know, but it, it is a hard thing to just come out and start talking about. And that's what we've been dealing with as Americans. So I think, you know, this film will definitely help address that. But this scene in particular is so special for me because I feel like, it's the shock that black people have to deal with on a day-to-day basis. Like, I'm, I, I, I get recognized, you know, on a daily. Like, I take pictures and I do all of that, right? But it's different when I wear my jewelry. If I wear my jewelry, I could go into a place that you're not even supposed to, you know, wear sweatpants, but I can go in there with, like, swimming trunks on and wet from the beach. And they're like, no, Mr. Mitchell, come sit right here. It's, like, entirely different. And every now and then I just get that shock because I'll forget all about it. Like, I don't have to throw on a Rolex to go to the store and just go do something regular. But, like, when people follow you around the store and you're like, what's going on? How you doing? And they don't speak back. You're like, ma'am, I'm not going to steal from you. Are you kidding me? Like, I should be worried about you like I should lock my doors when I see you that's how like it, it feels like I've, I've you know I, I lived in a building in Chicago where I was shooting the shy and I had a lady like I literally had to get off the elevator because I was like this might go south I literally had a lady tell me to my face that I looked like I didn't live there and I was like wow okay this is this is my cue I'm gonna get off the elevator um I guess you know like Somebody must have, you know, told her who I was. So, like, later, you know, maybe eight or ten days later, she sees me again. She's like, you know, I just really wanted to clear the air because I felt like I was there was tension and, you know, you were a guy. And I was like, you know, there's all that. But I kind of feel like you said that to me because I was black. But <laughs> it's, it's really a thing. And I feel like uh, it's past the point of empathy. You grew up in New Orleans. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about it? I have never been. New Orleans is, man, it's a beautiful place. It's a beautiful place because to me it's the most liberated city in America. It's also one of the darkest places I've seen. You know what I mean? We've been the murder capital of the world several times. We've lasted through Katrina, which was catastrophe. But we all have this sort of, this this down-home jazz that's in us. And I love it so much because what I've taken from my city has been the number one thing that's kept me grounded because I'm still the guy that'll help somebody with their groceries. I'm still the guy that's going to let the ladies order first. I'm still going to let the ladies walk out of the elevator first. I'm working on my etiquette, so I, I, I follow going up the stairs and lead coming down the stairs. You know what I mean? I'm still that guy. I still take pride in knowing that my mom would be proud of the man that I am if that makes sense. It's a melting pot, man. It's a gumbo pot. <laughs> it definitely is. But it's it's a city with a lot of culture, you know, and a lot of identity. But, you know, we got our tragedy just like we got our love. Where were you in your life when Katrina happened? 
I was 18 years old, just graduated high school, ended up not going to college because I felt like, you know, helping my mom out was helping myself out. That's the best way I could really do it. <laughs> you know, just to be 18 and try to be a man, just try to go out there and get it myself. Are you talking about jobby jobs or are you talking about street work? Uh, It started off jobby job, but um, we evacuated to Austin, Texas, and like... I was working at a hotel, and it just wasn't working out. I mean, I could barely even communicate with the people. Most of them were, you know, fully fluent Spanish-speaking people because I was, you know, working. I had a lower-end job, so I could barely even communicate, you know what I mean? So I was like, yep, the streets keep calling. And so uh, that's what made the money faster, you know? But um, I think it also put me in sort of a fast-paced, blend of life experiences you know because i went through a lot in my life that i was like why just why why am i going through this and uh i didn't know that i would be acting somebody that people resonate with so well but i do know i got enough stuff to cry about that i didn't probably you know what i'm saying so you know i just save it all for the tv man i save it all for the tv you ended up catching some cases right yeah, yeah, yeah. That was, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I was just young and foolish, man. I was young and foolish, probably watching too many movies. Got too happy. And uh, it happened fast. It was pretty easy to get in trouble and just hard to get out. I fought for that. And it's so interesting because, like, uh, I damn near went broke <laughs> trying not to go to jail. And uh, the 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 first big movie that I was supposed to, well, that I was invited to the premiere of was uh, Contraband. And it opened worldwide. You know, Mark Wahlberg, he does it big. So it was supposed to be in France for the first opening. And I was in jail. And I was embarrassed. Like, people was like, man, actors don't go to jail, man. You ain't no actor, man. You ain't in that movie, man. What you talking about, man? Actors don't go to jail. Like, man, he was like, man, why are you still in here? I'm like, because I don't have a bond. You know, it, it it was something that uh, that really let me know early on. If I chose to lose everything, this is exactly how I was going to end up, and this is exactly how I was going to feel. Like I was going to be embarrassed. I was going to feel like uh, I couldn't help my children. You know, just really stupid. That's how jail really make you feel. You know, because as many things as people think. You like, like you think you're gonna go to jail and be like, I need a shank. Gonna have to deal with the biggest bully. And nah, you go in there and realize like, damn, how my girl gonna pay this bill? Like, who? Where's she gonna get the money from? You gotta think about that. You are gonna think about? I just want to walk to my refrigerator. You know what I'm saying? I want to make myself a sandwich instead of getting it in this little white paper bag. <laughs> and uh, it was, you know, you you realize real quick. That, you know, that ain't where you want to be. I missed, I missed a birthday. I missed, I missed my, my child's mother's birthday. I missed uh, Christmas, New Year's, my birthday and the premiere. And kind of my dignity. <laughs> and uh, it, it it just, it, it built me, man. It made me strong. And, uh. You know, I mean, I'm doing radio interviews with you, man. I was just on Jimmy Kimmel, baby. You know what I mean? Every <laughs> Life's good, baby. It's hard to listen, baby. <laughs> what's, it, what's it like to, like, tell your, to, like, check in with your PO or whatever and be like, well, I got this Mark Wahlberg movie coming up. 
Ah, <laughs> uh, you know it's so funny. When I got arrested, <laughs> my PO told me contraband. <laughs> oh, you got contraband, all right. <laughs> and he laughed at me. He la- he literally laughed in my face. I was like, damn, this is the worst thing ever. More with Jason Mitchell still to come. When we come back from a quick break, he'll tell me the perfect way to shuck oysters. He's a former professional shucker. Vital culinary info. Eat your heart out, splendid table. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Rosetta Stone, the app that teaches you to speak for yourself in a new language. Want to gift something that could last a lifetime? Give one of 24 languages this season and help your loved one thrive in real-world conversations. Built by experts, not crowdsourcing, Rosetta Stone goes beyond simple vocabulary with bite-sized lessons. Visit rosettastone.com NPR for their best offer of the year. Merry Mingling. Planet Money tip number 17. A great analogy doesn't have to make sense. Busier than a one-legged bobcat covering up his own crap on a frozen pond. Did you just make that up? <laughs> well, yeah. Just... Planet Money, a poetic podcast about the economy. Hey, if you like your podcast to be focused and well-researched and your podcast host to be uncharismatic, unhorny strangers who have no interest in horses, then this is not the podcast for you. Yeah, and what's your deal? <laughs> I'm Emily. I'm Lisa. Our show's called Baby Geniuses. And its hosts are horny adult idiots. We discover weird Wikipedia pages every episode. We discuss institutional misogyny. We ask each other the dumbest questions and our listeners won't stop sending us pictures of their butts. We haven't asked them to stop, but they also aren't stopping. Join us on Baby Geniuses every other week on MaximumFun.org. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the actor Jason Mitchell. You've seen him in the films Mudbound and Straight Outta Compton, in which he played Easy e He also starred on Showtime's The Shy. His new film is called Tyrell. It's out now. Can you tell me how you got the part in Straight Outta Compton? Well, they have this lady named Megan Lewis. She, uh does a lot of auditions in New Orleans. Like, for anything serious, you're probably going to end up going through Megan. And there's a lot of of shooting in New Orleans, especially the last 10, 15 years. Right. A lot of Hollywood productions there. Right, yeah. So she's done some pretty big stuff. And uh, it's kind of hilarious because right before that, I did uh, an audition for Pitch Perfect, which I see why I didn't get the part, but I took it super serious. So you can just imagine how that, (laughs) <laughs> Might have went, <laughs> but um, I mean, we are talking talking about the two biggest mu- music movies of the last decade, <laughs> right? Facts, <laughs> facts, facts. But uh, <laughs> for me, just doing anything with Megan always was very scary because she's very Boston and she's very like just serious face. She doesn't want to laugh with you. She may not shake your hand. She don't. She don't have time for all that. She's one of the people who don't care about letting you know that she don't have time for that, you know? When you say she's very Boston, do you mean that she's cold and Northeastern or that she's cold and Northeastern and also white? Cold and Northeastern and also white. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and um, I had just never booked with her. I always went in there and, like, sort of bombed, you know? Like, I had an agent who had enough respect to, like, put me in places that I probably shouldn't have been at times. And uh, she watched me audition, and she watched me get better. When we did Straight Outta Compton, I went in, 
put myself on tape with Megan, and she literally like double high fived me, walked me to the car, let me know how good this could be, called my agent as soon as I walked off. Like, it was just, I was like, you are not the Megan that I remember at all. Like, we don't, I don't know you. You're a total alien right now. She was so proud of me, right? So they call me back when I'm like at my job, I'm like shucking oysters. They call me, and they're like, uh, we want you to fly to L.A. tomorrow for a callback. I'm like, wait, what? Record scratch. Like, what? No. I'm not flying to L.A. for a callback tomorrow. I'm still on probation, for one. I'm not in the position. The way my bank account set up, you see what I'm saying? Because, see, I got kids. I can't just get on a flight to L.A. tomorrow like that. You see what I'm saying? I've never been to California. I don't know. You're scaring me right now. So they call me back, and they're like, well, they want to Skype it. I'm like, say less. Too easy. You know, so I go back by Megan because we got to hardwire this joint to the to the super wire with the big antenna on top of the building. We don't need no skips. We don't need no we don't need no Nathaniel. You know what I mean? We need this to be the best connection we could get, right? So get me to the CNN studio. Exactly. Facts, right? So we we go there and um it was an hour and 17 minutes over Skype. And we did these same five scenes over and over and over and over and over again. And at the end of it, I just bust out laughing, and I just remember hearing all of these voices start laughing. So I'm like, wait, wait, <laughs> all these people in the room? Like, who are these people? I still don't know who these people are to this day. You know what I mean? I don't know who was in that room. <laughs> but um, it was, it, it happened right there over Skype. Never left, never left New Orleans. My first time going to California was on the first class flight, headed to the London Hotel, baby. Wait, 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 wait. Let's hear my guest Jason Mitchell in Straight Outta Compton from a couple of years ago. He played Easy E in the movie. Um, in this clip, uh, Easy is in the studio and he's trying to lay down the lyrics for his probably a signature hit, Boys in the Hood. And Corey Hawkins is there playing Dr. Dre. Come on, you finished, Dre? You won't laugh too? <laughs> I stay in this by myself. Hey, just say the words, all right? What does that even mean? Man, just say the with me, all right? Cruising. Cruising! Yeah, right. cruising. Right. Let's go. Dre, you know this will never work. <laughs> All right, you're trying to be funny, but you see how you said that, right? Like you believe it? Yeah, I believe that. Then say this like you believe it, man. Like it's a Sunday and you cruising down Crenshaw in a in six four. Come on, say that like you believe it, man. Like it's your words. Feel this. Stop playing around. Loosen the. Up. There you go. <laughs> Cruising down the street in my six four. Oh, hey, that was dope, eh? That was dope, man. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about, man. You were a grown up when you started acting, right? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yep. I was 23. Uh, I probably got my first job at probably like 24. Yeah, it's been like sort of rolling ever since. And it was so weird because like I, I got a lot of rappers around me. Like rappers and drug dealers was what I grew up around as a child. You know what I mean? And and they make their own hours and they move as fast as they want to move and they make product as fast as they want to make it. But in film and acting, period, it's just hurry up and wait. Hurry up to the audition. Wait in the waiting room. Hurry up and do your audition. Wait for a callback. 
then hurry up and do your comeback and then wait to see and then wait to shoot. And it's always a, a, a waiting, a waiting, a waiting. And it was just something that I just wasn't satisfied with. Before I booked the film, I was like, I got to put something on my resume. Okay, let me go do some plays. You know what I'm saying? So I went and did like two plays. And don't get me wrong, like theater is a beautiful thing, but it was something I had to gas myself up to do in the middle of my life. And then once I started booking and I was like, okay, cool. But I had never been an extra. I didn't have any set experience. So all I knew was, oh, my little 45 minutes on set, my little three lines. And then when I booked the next thing, it was like, it wasn't enough. I booked the thing with Mark Wahlberg. I'm like, that wasn't enough. Then I booked another thing with him. That wasn't enough. I need a, you know, and then I booked straight out of Compton. And I'm like, that's still not enough. I'm still at the point in the race where, like, my head is still down. You know what I mean? I'm not even, I don't even see the finish line yet. I'm just trying to make sure my foot ain't, ain't off. Jason, you're a former professional oyster shucker. I am. Can you give me any oyster shucking tips? I've never shucked an oyster. Um, it's pretty easy, man. It's because they have a hedge on the back, obviously, because it's a muscle. It opens and closes like a clam. But um, first things first, you want to realize that you're basically gonna kill a live rock. Okay, you're gonna take a you're, <laughs> <laughs> you're gonna take a life. At this point, it's still alive as long as it's closed. It's still alive and kicking, and you're an animal for taking a life so you gotta realize that first right but you want to just uh they have a flat uh, like a flat side which we i like to call the skillet side and then they have like a bowl side a lot of people like the bowl side to like you know slurp them off or whatever but the best presentation is on the flat side of it right so you put the bowl side on the bottom flat side on the top and the hinge like in the back right and as long as you put the pressure on the front of it when you sort of like jimmy the knife into the hinge it'll it'll pop that's that's kind of what it is but i mean sometimes you know i'm from new orleans i didn't see super huge oysters you know what i mean (laughs) you might need a crowbar for like you know but um yeah that's basically it man that's that's the tips you know like i'm arguably one of the best char grillers in the world i would put my money down on it that i would i would feed you oysters that change your life for sure well, I'm, but whenever, just let me know. <laughs> He's like, I'm down, I'm down. Yeah, and then after I'm we down, can no. go to the club with Future. <laughs> Don't, <laughs> right? Just set up shop outside with the grill. <laughs> Make it super, super New Orleans. <laughs> well, Jason, thank you so much for taking all this time to be on Bullseye. It was really great to get to talk to you. This is a pleasure. This is this is a pleasure, man. This is uh, a milestone, brother. So uh, I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Jason Mitchell, everyone. Tyrell is his new film. It's in theaters now. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. We're kind of fascinated with the golden age of Hollywood. Orson Welles and Cary Grant and Gone with the Wind and all that stuff. Look up the topic. You will find hundreds of books and movies and TV shows. Bus tours. Basically, everything that could possibly be imagined. And a lot of the times, those depictions aren't really subtle. They're usually swept up in glitz and glamour, or they are the opposite of that, dark and morose and gritty. 
But behind the history and the lore of that era, there are real complex stories about actual human beings, people who are household names today, people we've long since forgotten. Karina Longworth is a writer and an expert researcher on that era. She's written five books on the topic, and she also hosts the beloved podcast, You Must Remember This. And in all of her work, she's nuanced, subtle, and she digs up all the most important information. Her newest book is called Seduction, Sex, Lies, and Stardom in Howard Hughes Hollywood. Hughes is, of course, one of the most famous 20th century Americans. Just, that's it, one of the most famous 20th century Americans. He's been written about and depicted in films a thousand different ways. Maybe you saw The Aviator some years ago. Anyway, Longworth's book talks about Hughes in Hollywood way back when. Financing movies, writing and directing movies, at one point running a studio. But more than Hughes, the book is about a group of women who passed through his life, their stories, and how they were affected by the weird, abusive system that he created to recruit, develop, and control actresses. Karina Longworth, welcome back to Bullseye. It's nice to see you. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So how did you end up thinking about Howard Hughes and the women with whom Howard Hughes worked and with whom Howard Hughes had various types of intimate relationships. Well, the very, very first seed of me wanting to do this was that I stumbled across some message board where somebody had made a post that was just women Howard Hughes had slept with. And it was just a list. And most of them were actresses. And there was no other information about any of them. And I read that list and I just thought, wow, every single name there has a whole story, just a whole life. And all this guy cares about is that they had sex with Howard Hughes. And that just made me think of ways in which you could use a fact that some people find titillating or interesting because of the fact that it's titillating and have that be like sort of a Trojan horse as a way to tell them other things and things that I find more interesting. So then I started doing a couple podcast episodes um, called The Many Loves of Howard Hughes about some of the women who ended up in the book, such as Jane Russell, um, Jean Harlow. And then it just became kind of a no-brainer that you could take some of these stories I had already done and add a lot more research and a lot more stories, and it becomes a book. Let's set a little context for people who have only a tenuous understanding of (laughs) who Howard Hughes was or who uh, some of the lesser-known figures in this story are. Um, Why was Howard Hughes rich? when he moved to Hollywood. And why did he move to Hollywood? His father had invented a groundbreaking, literally, (laughs) drill bit, which basically it accelerated the oil boom by allowing people to drill through harder rock faster. So his dad had a very thriving business doing that. He was not His dad wasn't even really a multimillionaire at that point, but he had a successful business. Then both of Howard Hughes' parents died, first his mom and about a year and a half later his dad. Um, At that time, Howard Hughes was 18 years old, and he spent the next year fighting the rest of his family for sole control over his father's company. Once he managed to get sole control over his father's company, he basically allowed other people to manage the company. And then he moved to Los Angeles and he had three goals. He wanted to be the best pilot in the world, the best golfer in the world, and the greatest motion picture producer in the world. So why do you think Hollywood was one of those goals? 
He talked about, you know, in early interviews when he was much less guarded than he became, he talked about, first of all, wanting to make a name for himself that was different from his father, like not wanting to be in the oil business or that kind of invention business. He wanted to do something that was just his. And he talked about being fascinated with movies and being drawn to watching them even when he knew they were bad and talked about like almost a hypnotic lure that they had for him. And when you pair those kinds of things that he said with things that he said and things that he would later do when it came to presenting women on the screen, you know, I do think there was something sexual for him about watching movies. It was a place for him to be kind of alone with his fantasies. What were his first, like, power moves in the movie business? One of the very first films he produced was called Three Arabian Nights, and it was nominated for um, the best comedy film at the first Academy Awards, a category which did not exist after that point. And he was also nominated as the producer of a film called The Racket that year. So that was a big splash for him. These movies were big hits. And it gave him the credibility and the, the local power in order to do what was then his dream project, which is what became Hell's Angels. What did that job entail? Are we talking about he put up the money? Are we talking about he put every piece of these films together? Are we like, what was the power that he had and what was he actually doing? For his first few films, he was definitely just the money guy. Um, and he basically was able to find people that he trusted and who trusted him and who would take his money and turn it into movies. Once he had those first successes, though, um, then he became emboldened to try to make movies himself. And so from the beginning on Hell's Angels, even though at first he wasn't the writer or the director, he was supposed to be just the money man, he started wanting creative control. And he ended up pushing out this friend of his, Marshall Nealon, who claimed that he came up with the idea for the film. And um, Hughes basically took over for him and became the director of the film. The breakout star of Hell's Angels was Jean Harlow. Who was Jean Harlow? Jean Harlow was nobody when she was first cast in in Hell's Angels. She was a young woman recently divorced from a quickie teenage marriage. Um, She had a very controlling stage mother whose name was also Jean Harlow. And um, she was the ex-girlfriend of one of the actors in Hell's Angels, um, James Hall. And Hall brought Jean Harlow in for a screen test and Hughes saw something in her. Nobody else saw anything in her. They saw a beautiful girl who looked incredibly uncomfortable on camera. But Hughes liked that. Um, and so he cast her in this film, and he she had a, a very curvaceous body. Um, she was not somebody who felt empowered by her sexuality or wanted to display it. But Hughes thought that that's where the money lay, was in exploiting Jean Harlow's very curvaceous body. So he created these costumes for her that would show an, an incredible amount of cleavage. And he kind of built the film around her just walking into rooms and changing the temperature of everybody in the room. What was the relationship between Hughes and Harlow? A lot of people believe that they had some kind of affair. But in my research, I don't think that that's credible. Um, I think that he was her employer and she was under contract to him and she had to do what he said, but that she didn't like him very much at all. Was he always a jerk? <laughs> Look, I'm just going to go ahead and take it as read. One of the one of the lessons we learn from Karina Longworth's new book, Seduction, Sex, Lies, and Stardom in Howard Hughes Hollywood, is that it turns out Howard Hughes maybe wasn't a great guy overall. But was that always the case? 
I think there were signs that he was always extremely manipulative and he was never interested in taking no for an answer and he was never interested in being denied anything. And so when he didn't like a situation, he would do whatever he could to get out of it. And if he didn't like the way somebody was treating him or wanted something from that person, he would do what he needed to do to get those things. What's an example of that in his relatively early life? Well, he found it necessary to marry before he moved to Los Angeles. And the the reasoning behind this seems to be that as part of his goal of getting full control over his family's company, he needed to convince them that he was a serious adult man and serious adult men marry. And so he married a girl, you know, who he apparently had had some kind of childhood crush on. She wasn't interested she was convinced by her family that she should marry this guy who had a lot of money and who would take care of her. And, you know, on paper, he seemed like he would be a good husband. He was young and handsome and he had a lot of money. Um, and then basically, as soon as he got what he wanted from that situation and the two of them were in Los Angeles, he just ignored her. He spent no time performing the functions of a husband in any kind of traditional way. And after a few years, she just got fed up and left, which was what he wanted. More with Karina Longworth after a quick break. When we come back, she'll tell me whether or not writing the book changed her perception of Howard Hughes. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. I'm bailiff Jesse Thorne. And I'm Judge John Hodgman. If you live on the west coast of North America, we're coming your way. That's right. Judge John Hodgman is taking justice to the west coast on tour. Starting where? Vancouver, British Columbia, January 15th. Then to Seattle, Washington on the 16th. Portland, Oregon on the 17th. San Francisco, California on the 18th. And Los Angeles, California, the City of Angels on January 22nd. Tickets are on sale now. You can find links to all of the shows at MaximumFun.org. And if you're going to be in one of those cities and you have a dispute we can try on stage, send it to us. Just go to MaximumFun.org slash JJHO or email Hodgman at MaximumFun.org. I'm ready to judge you on the road. Take that, Jack Kerouac, author of On the Road. Hey, gang, Jesse again. We're asking listeners like you to show your love for public radio as we get closer and closer to the end of the year. Do it by going to donate.npr.org slash bullseye to support your local public radio station and then tell the world why with the hashtag YourPublicRadio. Again, that's donate.npr.org slash bullseye. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with the writer Karina Longworth. She's an expert on the history of Hollywood's golden age. She hosts a podcast about it. It's called You Must Remember This. She also has a new book out. It's called Seduction, Sex, Lies, and Stardom in Howard Hughes Hollywood. Let's talk a little bit about Jane Russell, because Jane Russell is a star who um, is much deeper into Hughes' life as a uh, he became more exploitative and more manipulative and more insane. <laughs> um, tell me about how uh, Hughes and Jane Russell connected. So she was a teenage girl from the Valley. She was engaged to marry a football player. 
And she did some quote unquote sports modeling, which was just very tame pinup photos of her in a bathing suit. Uh, one of these photos was spotted by an agent who knew that Howard Hughes was looking for a girl to play a half Mexican in a movie. He got Howard Hughes the the headshot. She was brought in for an audition. She was cast. Was this like a normal way for Howard Hughes to cast people in movies? Like get a picture of somebody? There's a point where he's like literally like getting a picture of somebody, then sending somebody to take a picture of that person and bringing them to Hollywood on that basis. So this was not would not have been normal for anybody else. But yes, this was normal for Howard Hughes. And especially after Jane Russell, he did develop this process of he he read every magazine and newspaper he could get his hands on. He'd spot a picture of a girl that he liked the looks of. And then he'd hire one of his personal photographers to go to wherever that girl was and take very specific Hughes-mandated photos. These photos had to be the actress or the girl was not supposed to be wearing any glamour makeup or have her hair professionally done. And the photos were supposed to be head-on and simple profile shots so that he could see what they really looked like. And then if he liked what they really looked like, he'd start this whole process of having her come to Los Angeles and he'd get her either a hotel room or an apartment or a house and he'd assign people on his staff to drive them around and basically spy on them 24 hours a day and put them through acting classes and all of these things. And the whole purpose of this in most cases was so that there could be a girl in a house who was available for Howard Hughes when he wanted to see her. And he was a... Almost like a a collector of women. He would date multiple people at the same time and would like put them up in bungalows at the at, at the hotel. Yep, at the Beverly Hills Hotel. Let's talk about the Outlaw, the movie that Jane Russell starred in. Tell me a little bit about it as a movie. What's it about? It's about Billy the Kid, and it's based on a, a sort of fantasy version of the Billy the Kid story that Howard Hawks had once heard, which was that his his death was faked um, and that he actually ran off with this girl. Um, and the way that it ended up manifesting in this movie that Howard Hughes made is that Billy the Kid um, is in hiding and he uh, meets this young woman, this half Mexican woman played by Jane Russell. And she understands that Billy the Kid had killed her brother, so she like tries to kill him with a pitchfork, and he rapes her in a hayloft, and then she falls into some kind of hypnotic love with him and basically goes from being um, a strong woman who wants to kill him to being his slave. It's reflective of the relationships that Hughes seemed to want to have with women, which were very much about power. I mean, he was a guy who wanted to have control over everything in his environment. Absolutely. And, you know, it it seems almost like that is as important to him as, you know, that that is like the central part of being a a playboy for him is that kind of sense of control and ownership. Absolutely. And and, and that's also where being a collector comes in, too, because he didn't want just one woman with whom he would be forced to have an intimate relationship. He wanted to have a lot of women who he could spread his time around so thin that he never none of them ever really got to know him personally, even if they got the illusion that they did. And, you know, somehow it was easier for him to spread himself that thin than to actually like really give himself to one person. 
How does learning about these stories, learning about the real human beings, change the way that you process the artworks? Well, I, I mean, I don't think that it necessarily always does, except in that I think it gives you more empathy for the people you see on screen and and you almost feel like you know them to some extent. But then in some cases, like there's a movie I write about in the book called Wait Till the Sun Shines, Nellie. This is a movie I'd never heard of until I started doing this book. And now it's a movie that I'm completely fascinated by. And that's a film that Jean Peters stars in. I think it's 1952 or 1953. It's while she's dating Howard Hughes, but before they get married. And it's a movie about a woman who marries a guy and she thinks she's married like a great guy who's a great catch. And then they're on a train on their honeymoon and they're supposed to get off in Chicago. And he tells her they're getting off before Chicago in a tiny town. And it turns out he's promised her that they're going to live in Chicago. But he's actually bought a barber shop in this tiny town. And this is the first of many, many, many lies he tells her. And the movie, at least the first half of the movie, is about her slowly coming to understand that what she thought was reality is, in fact, a complete manipulation on the part of the guy she married. And it's a fascinating movie for a lot of reasons. But one of the reasons is because in 1957, Jean Peters would marry Howard, marry Howard Hughes and he would do the same thing to her, more or less. He would just lie to her and lie to her and lie to her and try to create these illusions that things were one way when the truth was completely different. And she stuck it out for way longer than I think a lot of modern women would or women in another situation would. I mean, I, f- I feel like there is um... – there is a conversation about do you separate the art and artist because there have been many cases of uh, artists doing terrible things in their lives. There's a second conversation, which is that it, it seems like Hollywood, especially the films as a commercial product, are created in part to be in dialogue with this public conversation about who their stars are as people. And it seems like that's on purpose. And that was like something that certainly Howard Hughes was perfectly aware of. <laughs> like he was set out to create these narratives in 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 the press that were supposed to represent reality that ran parallel to the narratives that went up on the screen. Yeah. I mean, he he is not he did a lot of things publicity-wise that were new or more extreme than other people. But in terms of that parallel narrative, I mean, Hollywood was doing that in the teens. Um, and I think that that's one of the things that really makes Hollywood a interesting and an unusually successful industry is that they, from the very beginning, they understood that the movies were completed by this sort of second screen experience, this this other narrative. Are there times when that second narrative gets... we? We just talked about a time when the real-life narratives that you know about complemented your film-watching experience. Are there situations where these real-life narratives, especially when you're learning about all this awful stuff, uh, despoil your experience of art? Well, certainly. I mean, I, I think I, like a lot of people, have to you know, sort of second guess fandom of people like Roman Polanski and and Woody Allen um, knowing things that we know. Um, for me, the hardest one is Polanski because I think he's one of the greatest filmmakers of all time. Um, 
and I I can't I can't you know I can't dismiss his body of work. It's just impossible for me. I also um, have you know written about him and and I did a podcast season about the Manson murders in which his treatment of Sharon Tate is a big feature and. I find that heartbreaking and really upsetting, but I can't turn my back on those movies. We know some of the story of Howard Hughes's progressively more eccentric, lonely, and uh, lousy life as as the years went on. Um, one of the things that you have kind of brought to the fore about that progression in his life is that we know a lot more now than we did even 10 or 15 years ago about the ways that head injuries affect people. He was a dude who was in like many plane and automobile crashes. Correct. And there was not that good of seatbelts at the time. (laughs) No, and also in a lot of cases he was getting like – sub-hospital medical care because he was trying to keep things quiet. I'm not saying that the private doctors attending him weren't good, but he didn't want to be hospitalized for things. So I really believe that that his brain was fundamentally altered after the major plane crash of 1946 in which he crashed an experimental plane into a Beverly Hills neighborhood and was pulled out of the burning wreckage and probably should have died. He certainly became a codeine addict after that. And he was able to be a functional codeine addict for about seven to ten years. Um, But the last 20 years or about 20 years of his life, he was primarily an addict more than he was functional at anything else. Did considering his story through the lens of this series of people whose stories were less well known through, through their eyes, so to speak, change at all your own presumptions about him? I think that I still had, going into the project, I think I still had this idea that, you know, maybe that that came a little bit from the aviator, maybe just came from his mythology and the public imagination, that he was more or less a success. And being able to see him through focusing on his time in Hollywood and how he was perceived by people in Hollywood, you know, I can say that he was not a success in Hollywood, at least. I mean, his legacy in Hollywood is primarily a negative one. He very um, arrogantly kind of bumbled into destroying the studio system by accepting a, a, a deal to divorce RKO's production unit from its uh, theatrical distribu- uh, exhibition unit, um, which forced all of the other studios to follow suit. So they could no longer be vertically integrated. They couldn't, they couldn't own the theaters and the cameras. Right. Correct. Um, he was the first person to say – to give up fighting that and to accept it because in his mind that would allow him to negotiate with other movie theaters rather than just having to show RKO stuff in RKO theaters. Um But it didn't work out that way and turned into a huge disaster for the studio system. Um, Certainly his work to antagonize the censorship system, um, you know, might have led to our current rating system, which, you know, is maybe good in some ways, negative in other ways. And, you know, if you just look at the numbers, his, his movies like did not make the money that 
his publicists wanted us to think that they did. Karina Longworth, thanks for coming on Bullseye. It was great to get to talk to you. Thank you so much, Jesse. Karina Longworth. Her new book, Seduction, Sex, Lies, and Stardom in Howard Hughes Hollywood, is out now in bookstores. It's a fascinating read. And if you don't already listen to her podcast, you must remember this. It's a wonderful compendium of strange, beautiful, and fascinating stories of old Hollywood. Every week on Bullseye, we wrap up the show with a recommendation from me. It's called The Outshot. One of the best years of my life was spent rolling objects into an ever-growing sticky ball to please my father, the king of the cosmos. I just, I really love this video game called Katamari Damacy. <laughs> Katamari is a legendary game now in 2018, but back then it was a very tiny production. It grew out of a student project led by a junior employee at the video game publisher Namco. It moved forward basically because it was so boldly original. I mean, just not like any other game that had ever existed. The pitch was pretty simple. The player rolls a ball around the game world, and as the ball rolls... It grows, sort of like a snowball. Anything smaller than the ball sticks. Anything bigger is a roadblock. You run into it and the ball bounces off and some of your stuff falls on the ground. Usually in the game, the goal is to grow your ball to a certain size by rolling stuff up in a certain time. But also sometimes you have to roll up something in particular, like as many swans as you can, or a cow. Cows being very big. You start tiny, on the floor, rolling up like paper clips. And over time you grow until you're rolling up mountains and clouds. Roll up something weird-shaped, your ball rolls weird. It's a simple game. But it is incredibly satisfying. There is a plot as well, and the plot is as strange as the game is. You are the tiny son of the huge king of the cosmos who has destroyed the stars after going on a bender. Again, I said it's weird. He needs you, his son, to find enough material to recreate the entire skyscape. He's going to somehow turn the pencil erasers and parking cones and cows into new planets and stars. The king, your dad, is immensely charming and full of very strange pronouncements. I don't know if they are intentionally strange or if they are just weirdly translated from Japanese, but... They really thread the needle between grandly mystical and straight-up dopey. My, he says, the earth really is full of things. At one point, he announces, the sky is not pretty at all, rough and masculine, possibly sweaty. <laughs> <laughs> 
been thinking about that one for 15 years. Your mission is accompanied by a breathtaking array of Japanese pop tunes, songs that feel like they borrow from every popular music tradition that's ever existed. They're gleeful and manic and intoxicated. It's now a decade and a half later, I still occasionally catch my internal monologue saying, Katamari, do your best. La 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 la. Anyway, sorry. The world in the game made great use of the best technology of the time. The PS2 could handle a lot more actual 3D rendering than anything that came before it. So everything is colorful and spiky and bouncy and bumpy. Katamari is a game dedicated to the feeling of magic. That sense of limitless possibility that playing a game can give you. Every element serves that goal. Everything. Everything on the screen, everything you hear is delightful, surprising, remarkable. I mean, it's wonderful. It is literally wonderful. It is a game that fills you with wonder. They're re-releasing Katamari this month. It's called Katamari Reroll. And honestly, I only have one worry. That I will buy it and then get sucked in again and bliss away another year of my life, rolling the universe into crazy balls. That's my outshot. That's all for this week's Bullseye. Our show is recorded at MaximumFun.org World Headquarters, overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California, where, holy cow, was there some bird drama this week. A red-tailed hawk was spotted by our producer Kevin in a deadly fight with two crows right outside our windows. Must have been really something to behold. All those birds flapping around. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. Jesus Ambrosio is our associate producer. Yes, that's right. A promotion this week for Chewy. Congratulations. We got help on this episode from Casey O'Brien. Production fellow at MaximumFun.org is Shayna Deloria. Our interstitial music was provided to us by DJW, a.k.a. Dan Wally. Our thanks to Dan. Our theme song is by the Go Team. Our thanks to them and to their label, Memphis Industries. If you'd like to hear any of our past shows, hundreds of them, hundreds, hundreds, hundreds are available to you on our website. Just go to MaximumFun.org. You can also find us on Facebook, on Twitter, and on YouTube. Just search for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. And I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. NPR.